0: Hi, everybody. i uh, got a couple uh, housekeeping announcements I want to do for you. Um, this is uh, Tithe.ly, T-I-T-H-E dot L-Y. If you go on here, you can download an app, and this is also a place where you can give. Um, the app is pretty cool. It, uh, it, it reads, pulls stuff directly off the website, so it's also got the scheduling page that's going on, and it'll just help you stay in touch in other ways. So Tithe.ly... T-I-T-H-E dot, uh, dot L-Y. And if you look for Joyland in Colorado Springs, that'll let you download the app. The app's free and it'll help you stay in touch with us. And of course, we we would love it if you give. It's an unusual time, obviously, to keep things rolling. And and uh, one thing I do want to say about giving, one of the horrible things revealed at the beginning of this time with the coronavirus was that people were insecure and they were hoarding and you could see it in all different kinds of ways. And one way to overcome that kind of tendency, if, if you ever face any of it, is to come in the opposite spirit. We had a chance uh, as a church to give some money to a, a young family in Africa recently. We just heard a report back on Tuesday morning at the at the Tuesday morning breakfast we had online. And that little bit of money not only secured them food for the month, it secured his wife a doctor's visit and the medicine she needed. And in the course of that medicine, she's feeling much, much better. They're a young couple, she's pregnant, and she was having some bleeding issues. And so that looks like it's 99% over. And in addition, the money left over, they went out and they bought some food for the grandmothers that had grandkids running around, caring for them. And this is a unique situation in Uganda. Because of the AIDS virus, people that are in their 30s to 50s almost all died. And so you have young people that are under 30, and you have the elderly that are like 60 and up. And so they, this, this young guy and his wife, they were in their late 20s, they, uh, they had enough to buy some food. But get this, they also had enough to repair a water pump in their, in their community. And now the people have fresh, clean water as a result of a really small little gift that we were able to give them. It was just awesome. So there's, there's ways we can make some impact. And if you keep your ears open, your heart open to the Lord, you're going to be able to find some of those ways. There are going to be neighbors that are going to need things, people in your family or whatever the case is. So anyway, uh, you can give to us through this, but you can also just break that spirit of fear that there's not going to be enough by keeping your ear to the Lord and giving to somebody else. Here's uh, here's the message tonight. How to respond as sons. So I'm going to put my... Uh, my self-timer on here, and we are ready to rock and roll. This is a discipline I'm trying to do because I appreciate all you guys coming, and I know some of you are halfway around the world, and who knows what time it is, so bless you guys. We thank you for finding your way here. Okay, I've been pushing back pretty hard at what I've heard over and over again, and it's, it's uh, voices of leaders, prophetic voices, just plain old voices and everybody is is calling out for something to try to fix this problem with the coronavirus. And uh the, the one that i hear most often and i've talked to you about for like last week is 2 uh, Corinthians uh not 2 Corinthians, 2 Se- Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves uh and uh pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways then i'll heal their land. And i know i know i know it is such a temptation to believe that that uh Taking a stand like that and calling on God to do something like that is a, is a is a good thing. It, it's a it's a poetic thing. It's a, it's a noble feeling thing. But I push back against it because I believe that it's reaching out of the magnificence and the intimacy of the relationship we have with God right now in Jesus Christ, out of this new covenant relationship, and appealing elsewhere. Appealing elsewhere. And so I I wanted to uh, not just harp on that again because I've, I've written about it on Facebook, and I've talked to people about it, and I've talked to you guys about it. I want to say, well, if we're not going to do that, if we're not going to go, you know, it sounds like a good idea to to uh, repent and to to pray and seek God's face and turn from my wicked ways. And who's, who's arguing that's not a good deal anyway? Well, if we're not going to do that, and I'm telling you guys that that's not the route to go, what is the route to go? In other words, what do we have as response options as sons of the new covenant? And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. This verse underneath here is found in Hebrews, first part of chapter 12, and it says, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finish of our faith. That was the best summary verse I could find that kind of encapsulated the options about us as sons and daughters of the new covenant responding to trouble and crisis. Run the race with your eyes fixed on Jesus. Run it hard, run it with endurance. But fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So let's get started. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place year after year with the blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now there's some, some stuff that I want to show you here. This one word, and, and I, most of you guys, if you know me, you know that I love digging into the word, and I love finding some stuff about the Greek. So it's the word consummation. It's the word soon telei, and it, it's from suntileo. Teleo means complete or perfect, soon means with. But here are the two definitions. To complete something that has been in process, to bring to an end, complete, finish, or close something. The other one is to carry it out like a fulfillment aspect. To carry out or bring into being something that has been promised or expected to carry out to fulfill or to accomplish something. Okay, so here's the parts that are accomplished in this situation. This is what Good Friday is about. This is what Good Friday is about. So look at this highlighted part on the bottom of scripture here. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he, Jesus, has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. What I would like to suggest to us is that we ought to be conscious of and we ought to be slow to toss that away. To trade it in. For a formula from another covenant, for a formula from days gone by, the the thing that that Second uh, Chronicles seven is speaking about is the dedication of the temple that Solomon built. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing, but it but it's it's a, a, a it has life that comes from another relationship, another kind of relationship with God, and undeniably, undeniably, it is a relationship before the full revelation of Jesus was there. And so I just want us to realize that it's it's not really okay. There's no it's not that there's no consequence if we turn away from this revelation. If we turn away from what Jesus did on Good Friday. And we go back to try to negotiate another kind of relationship or to step back into another kind of relationship with God to to figure out how to how to do our part and how to do His. And I don't have any doubt that the people that are appealing back to this or appealing back to, to uh, Nehemiah rebuilding the wall or any of the things that I've heard prophetically going around that, that pull from something other than the final sacrifice of Jesus, I don't doubt the intent of anybody's heart. I think it's all good. But what I do question is whether we really think what we're laying aside or setting aside, or what more like, more specifically to that verse I talked about earlier, what are we pulling our gaze from and to? to try to find something to make the coronavirus go away or to make our neighbors feel less afraid or to make ourselves feel less afraid. And the cost of pulling our eyes off Jesus is extraordinary. It's just extraordinary. It's not just extraordinary to us. It's extraordinary to the world that needs us to keep our eyes on Jesus. And I'll show you why here in just a second. All right, so here's Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, and having obtained eternal redemption. So here's the thing that we're missing. One thing, if we turn away from what Jesus did and the covenant that he established with the shedding of his blood, when Christ appeared, this sets up the contrast between that previous covenant. Christ had not appeared in that previous covenant. People didn't know who God really was. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't know the nature of the Father. They were borrowing images from the scenes around them. They were borrowing images from uh, other cultures around them. If you remember the story of Abraham, it, he didn't bat an eye when God says, go sacrifice your son, because he thought that's what all God wanted. And God had to show him, no, I'm not the one who wants a sacrifice. I'm the one who provides a sacrifice. So this is what we run the chance of losing if we pull our eyes off Jesus Christ. Because God spoke in many ways in the past, but in these days he's spoken to us by his son. And here's the difference. Who also happens to be the one through whom he created the world, through whom he created the ages. And so we're going to lose touch with, with the whole point of this thing. If we pull our eyes off Jesus. And then here's another issue. Down at the bottom, the highlight there where you see it. But th- through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Let's think for a second about appealing back to the Old Testament. Appealing back to this, for uh, that matter, the, the Second Chronicles passage. There's a quid pro quo going on there. If you'll do this, I'll do this. And one of those things was forgive your sins. But right here, it shows that Jesus has forgiven our sins. He came once for all to enter that holy place. Shouldn't we be careful throwing that confidence away? Isn't that reality something that we ought to focus on and keep our attention on? Because you know what? There's a million things a million voices internal and external that want to look at your behavior focus your attention on that we used to call it navel gazing in the vineyard movement it's so tempting to look at yourself and go i'm just not what i should be but you know what that's not how god sees you but you don't know that if you're just looking anywhere and everywhere if you're looking at god say well if you'll do this then i'll see you differently you don't you can't know that you cannot know how god sees you unless you look at and through Jesus. And if you do, the difference is so stark it's unbelievable. Now, why is it important for us not to be in doubt about this idea of once for all having obtained an eternal redemption? Well, it would be a hideous thing to waste. I mean, it's so ultimately valuable, it costs the life and the blood of the Son of God. So we don't want to cast that off. But what does it require of us? Hebrews says this. This is an interesting passage. It says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Let me read that again. Think about it. How many of you have ever gone anywhere in the church world and somebody said, Listen, we've got a a new beginners class. We'll just touch base with these issues of uh, uh, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings, baptisms, laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead. But that we don't concentrate on that stuff at all. We move on into maturity. That's exactly what the Scripture says. But in my experience in church, nobody ever does that. Matter of fact, you could plan an annual preaching calendar around the elements here in, in Hebrews 6, 1 through 3, and they would think you were going deep. But the reason it isn't deep is because Knowing this stuff is not what makes it deep. Relating to God makes it deep. Knowing that Jesus has said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. Now listen to me. Think back to this passage in, in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name. Does that sound assured? Does that sound secure? Does that sound like, oh, don't worry about it. You're my friend. I chose you. I chose you. No. So what I'm saying is that as as amazing as it sounds and as luring as that is to go back there and go, we need, we need to fast. We need to pray. We need to seek God's face. We need to do that because these are rough times. No. No. They're rougher than the times were six months ago and will be in a few months ahead. But these are just the times. These are the times that called for the Son of God to take on the form of flesh, to sacrifice His blood, to open up heaven and open up a relationship with the Father so we could operate as sons. Let us press on into maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, I don't know what everybody thinks when they hear that call to, to Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen, but it's pretty hard not to think about repentance as one of the highlights in it when it says, "If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, uh, you know, seek my face and pray and repent and turn from their wicked ways," repentance is into something, not from something. Repentance in this case is not appealing back to that, but appealing instead to what the Lord has offered and is offering once for all, finally, to turn away from these things and go on into the maturity, the maturity, if God permits, and I think God is. All right, so what are we supposed to do? How does a son respond as a son? We don't look at ourselves. We don't start gorging ourselves or engaging ourselves and trying to find a bunch of stuff that's wrong about us that we need to repent from. We turn into what Christ, we, when I say turn into, we, we don't look over here. We turn into what Christ has done for us, the reality of our identity. And on the, on the scripture here, this is Romans 8, 14 through 17. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So we turn into the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We start believing that he's speaking, believing that, he's, that he, we can hear his voice. that that those nudges mean something. We turn into that, and we turn into our sonship. Sons were not the objective of that call during the dedication of Solomon's temple. Even the term, if my people who are called by my name, that still leaves us distant. That still leaves God up on the mountain and us down in the valley. But, Sons, sons, that's different. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. If you have not received the spirit of slavery, again leading to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Not just sons, but sons who are intimate, sons who have communication, sons who are tight. And I'm getting to the point here in just a second, that's what the world needs, It doesn't need the Christians to hole away in a cave someplace trying to find things to repent of and asking God who's out there somewhere to fix this thing. What the world needs is for you and I to recognize that through the blood of Christ and the ascension to the right hand of the Father, we stand before the Father as sons. Sons who can are are adopted up into that doing the business of the Father. And then our words begin to make some difference. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and of children, heirs, fellow heirs with Christ, indeed if we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. just want you to think about one word in there, heir. That means that we are connected to the same future that Jesus is. We're not looking backwards, trying to be identified with a better place, a better time. It just drives me nuts, and I haven't heard that a lot now, but it drives me nuts when when Christians talk about uh, going back to the days when God, what, back to the good old days? I think the good old days are coming. I don't think they're behind us. We're heirs with Jesus moving forward into the reality that he gave his life for. So, sons also recognize their freedom and their glory and their significance. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, listen to this. And again, I'm talking about people tempted, myself too, tempted to try to, we got to find a formula so we can heal the land. We got to find a formula so we can overcome this thing. Look at what it says it says, for. The anxious longings of the creation wait eagerly, not for us to repent, not for us to to go into hiding, to go into fasting, to go into prayer in that way, for us to be revealed as sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from slavery to the corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So here's something that you don't think about when you're being called to, uh, my people hum- my, humble themselves and, and seek my face and pray and repent and turn from their wicked ways. Who reads that and thinks about glory? Who reads that and thinks about glory? Jeremy. Uh, pastor, is, it, is it a uh, uh, thought, thought process to... to- uh, I've often thought this, thing, this, to think that God has a history, or our Father has a history of submitting to the parameters of relationship that we have dictated. And so when they came out of Egypt, in other words, uh, he wanted to be their God. They wanted to have Moses as a mediator. And, and that started a whole cycle of, of how that looked. Um, is, is that a safe way to think about that? Um, I'll let you go ahead and respond. What? Yes, I think that there's plenty of evidence that people down through history have just wanted to be told what to do by their God. And, they, and it's also true that they never had a concept of doing it with him or him doing it with us. The idea of God walking among men, the idea of God being your father, that's a family relationship. Walking among men, the idea of the incarnation, that wasn't something that occurred very much in the history of religion uh especially in that day you know uh, uh, the nations around them their gods were distant they were precocious they were unpredictable they were demanding and they required sacrifice and that's what qualified them to be gods it's almost like people thought well if 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 i don't if i can't be afraid of you how am i supposed to relate to you and here comes jesus talking about love about your father in heaven it was a stunning thing when his disciples asked him uh, how should we pray? And he said, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, glorified be your name. I kingdom come, I will be done. And then invite him into the details of your life. Give us today our daily bread. And don't lead us into temptation. Keep us safe. So yeah, I think so, Jeremy. I think that's the truth. And I think that's what the incarnation fought against. Because people's images of God were at, no matter how much they loved him. And I, I really question How does love flourish when you have a distance way out there? How does love uh, flourish when it's a quid pro quo kind of relationship? If my people, then I'll heal. Love flourishes in communication. Love flourishes in being known and in knowing. And that's what Jesus has brought to us. And this is the thing I fear. I fear that, that when we turn away back to something that seems so concrete and so understandable, we are turning away from the, the only source of intimacy with God that there is. And that's Jesus. And I just think we, we, we can't afford to do that and the world can't afford to have us do it. Here's some stuff I highlighted in this passage of Scripture. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, in hope, Him who subjected it is God. So it's in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Because the whole creation is groaning until now. So, the futility of of, uh, corruption is a much better description of things like this coronavirus coming into existence on the world, than it is that God sent this to judges. It's the futility of corruption. It's the ability for a storm to tear up a coastland and destroy the animals and the people in that coastland, or a fire to ravage mountains here in the Rockies. That's the futility of corruption. The ability for corruption to destroy its own self as creation goes. And creation is sitting there in futility, groaning and begging for you and I to manifest as sons of God. And we're not going to do that by following an if-then kind of formula. All right, so we respond to better promises. Here's the better promises promise in Hebrews chapter 6, just before the New Covenant is outlined. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he also is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been erected or enacted on better promises. Here's the highlighted parts I want to show you. Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry. A better ministry. And he's done so as the mediator of a better covenant. Now I had some really good questions come back to me about why do I focus on the covenant and it seems like it runs down the other covenants and so on and so forth. The covenant describes the parameters of the government that God is engaged in with people. And the government that was engaged in when Solomon was dedicating that temple was, if my people will, I will. But this government, the New Testament government, is different. It's based not upon a compact between the two sides with humanity being one side and God being the other. It's based on a compact between the two, with humanity also being the incarnate Son of God and the Father. And so, as we move on here, here's a, here's a contrast to these. Okay, and I just want to make this point. This is where we're going to get to in the end. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, it reads like this. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So, this is a covenant statement. A covenant response to the dedication of the temple. Here's the two phrases I want you to see. If my people, then will I hear from heaven. If my people, then will I hear from heaven. Contrast that against this set of promises. This is in the, in Hebrews chapter eight. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will. Put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. You hear it? None of them shall teach his neighbor and none shall teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Look at the contrast. The one set of promises, and they were promises, and they were beautiful promises under that covenant, in that relationship, at that time. If my people, then I will. And that makes sense to us because we're law people. We're tree of knowledge of good and evil people. We're having a hard time being tree of life people, being love people. But that's why we have to stay focused on this covenant. If my people, then I will versus Now listen to this, I will, I will, they shall be, all shall know me, for I will be merciful, I will remember their sins no more. I'm hoping you can see the difference. I'm hoping that it's not that I've just got this huge bone to pick with people who want to repent and and, uh, seek God's face, those are (laughs) good things like, it's that we're trading the bottom line for the top one. We're ignoring the fact that God is standing here now and what he says and thinks makes a difference. And he's standing here saying, I will, I will, you shall, you shall, all shall. I will be merciful. We don't have to do anything for that. Jesus did everything for that. There's no if then here. There's an I will, an I will, and I will. Yeah, Ronnie. the prior slide where you highlighted the I will the very first I will you didn't do which is actually the most important one for this is the covenant that I will it wasn't one of the conditions but it's still the exact initiative that reveals that's a good point Ronnie it's a good point God's the one that set this in motion You know, there's that little statement about marriage. I hadn't thought about that until just a second. What God has joined together, let not man tear asunder. That's how I feel about the difference between these two covenants. What God has joined together. God joined us together with Jesus Christ so that our yes could be yes and our no could be no and not be flaky like it was in the past. Now, we don't fully experience that yet because I can still let an errant no slip out or, a, or some kind of other boasty middle thing. But the reality is Jesus has done it for us. He has said yes to the Father, and his yeses are yes. He has taken sin unto himself, and he's not backing out of it. God's the one that made this happen. And, and I, as my, I, so I just want to say my own personal position is we can't hold on to both of these things at once. We can hold on to all kinds of beauty, We can hold on to all kinds of prophetic symbolism in the Old Testament. We can hold on to all of the revelations of Jesus that he talked to those guys on the road to Emmaus about when he started with Moses and began to explain himself and through the prophets. All of that is fantastic. But the core, we cannot trade. Because to do so, we have to trade these I wills for that if then. And I just want to encourage you that we just Honestly, can't afford to do that. We honestly can't afford to do that. If my people, then I will. It's not worth the trade. We respond from a place, and we're just going to go into it in a minute, and I'm not going to go big on this because we're going to do it. The other thing that we have access to in the new covenant is the Father himself and the heavenlies. We can actually dialogue with him. We can actually go visit him. We can actually see him. And to trade that away is, is crazy. Brett? Hi. Hi. Uh, my whole question is from the, we always talk about the old covenant and the new covenant. And my, my whole concept, and I know you'll probably get to this more, and I'm learning more, But how is God changed from the old covenant to the new covenant? And my thought is, did he just allow man? That was a great question that uh, Mr. Skinner talked about. Did he deal with man, how man wanted to be dealt with back in the old covenant? And then the new covenant, he's like, man, I'm just going to take it over. And I will. And I will. And I will. But this is the kind of thing we talk about a lot. I would tell you, God didn't change at all. He didn't change at all. His manifestation changed in our realm through the incarnation. Jesus came and revealed who God always was. But God couldn't always be perceived that way and couldn't project himself and communicate that way. Think about the simplest illustration of it all to me. There's two of them. One is in the Garden of Eden, God did absolutely nothing. And one day he was able to walk and talk and fellowship with Adam and Eve. And the next day they were hiding from him and afraid. He didn't change a bit. The other one is on Mount Sinai. God came with the intent of living among the people of Israel. But here's a bunch of people. I mean, God is holy. God is magnificent. God is, you know, he's, he's a consuming fire. You can't just uh, fly up to him like a moth and expect not to have a physical reaction and everything. But God wanted to live with those people, but just the sheer magnitude of his presence scared the heck out of them. And they chose not to let that happen. They put Moses in for an intermediary. Now, keep something in mind. These are not, this is the thing we get, we get uh, confused about. God recognizes the dignity of people because he created that dignity. And therefore, he's not going to run roughshod over us and treat us like we're deaf muse. We are designed to be administrators of this kingdom. Creation is subjected to futility, not of its own accord, but by the one who subjected it in hopes that it could be set free when we step into the fullness of the destiny that we have. And we are in the midst of that in the new covenant. So, yeah, we're going to talk about that kind of stuff a lot, Brad, if you hang around. And uh, it's it's just, it's kind of hard to see because we get this outside glimmer of ourselves and we, see, we know that there's yucky stuff and all this kind of thing, but Jesus himself is the difference in that. And that's the other reason we can't afford to turn back to another format, another governmental covenant, and hope to find solutions, because that covenant is behind the times in revealing who we are and who God is. And we're on that journey to be functioning as sons and functioning as friends. Amen. Thank you